0: Welcome to Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya
1: Crittenden, a writer and editor in Los Angeles, and I am joined by my two co-hosts. I'm Huai Chen Bu, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York.
2: And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area.
1: All right, guys. It's, uh, it's Miyazaki season. I have no, like, intro for this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's fall. The leaves are changing. It's starting to look beautiful. Miyazaki is really known for his landscaping. Boom, we got it.
1: There we go. The best uh, econo- uh, ecological environmental director, <laughs> because it's fall, and also because we love Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, you guys might have no- might have noticed in previous episodes, in what whenever we go off on a Hayao Miyazaki tangent, um, it becomes quite an impassioned tangent. And so we decided to do a full episode on. Hayao Miyazaki, the man, the legend, the greatest anime director, one of the best directors of all time. And um, I'm going to try to do this episode without dissolving into tears. Who knows? what will happen.
0: I'm taking bets on uh, that not working out for you. It's
1: um, okay. You'll just evolve into a
2: a spirit forest creature and roam the the land. You'll
1: just be a Miyazaki character at that point. I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? It is. That's the dream. So, Hayao Miyazaki is a Japanese animator, filmmaker, screenwriter, author, manga artist, uh, a legend extraordinaire. Uh, He was born in 1941 and is responsible for the uh, co-founding of studio ghibli one of the best animated animation studios uh in existence current currently coming back into existence as miyazaki is uh going through his umpteenth on retirement <laughs> his third we final all, film we all
0: knew
1: We all knew because he cannot stop working we've been new we've been new he has directed uh 11 feature films uh co-written dozens others and um been just responsible for some of the most beautiful, elegant, heartwarming, and just touching, moving uh, animation that, uh, to date. Um, he's also created other things such as the Conan uh, Boy of the Future <laughs> TV series, and uh, is well known for his partnership with director Isao Takahata and of course the creation of Studio Ghibli. So we're going to be going into first our sort of personal experiences with Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, we'll try not to go too long with it. And then go a, we'll touch a little into his themes that have been recurring throughout his many works that he's both directed and other works that he's been involved with as well. Because he, uh, we were talking about this earlier before the podcast, is a director of many themes and, them- and thematic uh, threads that kind of overlap and are seen throughout and a lot of them are tied personally to his own personal life but also his uh you know the japanese culture from which he hails and uh the um post-world war ii culture from which he uh grew up in as well so um we're i'm excited to be talking about this finally this is something i feel like it's been a long time coming and we are not hopping on the bandwagon of some of a sudden like Surgeon Miyazaki content by the way I don't know why there's just so many podcasts and videos about Miyazaki recently but I'm not complaining because he is my favorite director of all time and um I'm guessing I'm gonna start with this because uh this uh you are our resident
0: Miyazaki number one fan
1: yes the resident Miyazaki nerd slash fangirl slash just like a little bit too obsessed at the moment i'm actually reading a book called miyazaki world uh, written by susan napier and uh, it goes into his life and um his creations and the themes that run throughout so that's kind of like the perfect jumping off point for this i'm not finished yet with it i've only gotten through uh the the sections on my neighbor totoro so it goes chronologically through his career but um let, um, let me just start off with uh, talking about how, what, how much of a personal impact Miyazaki has made on me. Oh gosh, okay. Um, <laughs> I know, how are you going to put this into words in just a few minutes? <laughs> um, I'm going to start off with uh, something that I read actually in, in Susan Napier's book that really got to the core of what I was trying to articulate earlier when I was talking about Spirited Away and seeing that in theaters for uh, the first time and seeing it again for the first time in a long time. And uh, it really struck me, um, like, and put into words what I was trying to say. Uh, It's a Japanese term called mono no aware, which means the sadness of things. And that's something that uh, sort of penetrates throughout all of Miyazaki's works in which he tries to bring to all of his works. And it is a term that really uh, is able to just, you know summarize everything that i love about miyazaki's films in such a perfect way so the sadness of things uh it's something that talks about how the ephemeral nature of life and things in general is just inherently sad and but and yet it's like that melancholy to everything and yet there's it's not a completely depressing term either it's just kind of It's a fact of life, which I think is just so perfect when it comes to Miyazaki's films, which are, you know, films made for children and are much more happy and optimistic and lighthearted than a lot of other, you know, anime films that you'll see. And yet there is that undercurrent of melancholy that just is able to really reach me, um, especially as a kid. Uh, I will go a little bit into my history with it. It it all started... (laughs) Well, it started before I was twelve years old because when I was young my parents, you know, would buy me all sorts of animated films, among them being Studio Ghibli films. I watched when I was young movies like Kiki's Delivery Service, which uh I watched so many times that the VHS cover just got completely torn and completely I love destroyed. That. I it was actually one of the few VHS tapes that was at my grandmother's house. She only had like maybe six movies at her house. So whenever I went to her house, I only had a choice of like that, Shitty (laughs) Shitty Bang Bang and Kangaroo Jack or something else. (laughs) What a a varied collection. Truly. So sometimes I would just, I would often just go to her house and pop in Kiki's Delivery Service and watch it over and over. I think I've watched it more than a dozen times. And it really um, stuck with me. I didn't really know anything about Studio Ghibli or Hayao Miyazaki back then. It was just a movie that I knew that really spoke to me, and I would later watch movies like *Grave of the Fireflies*, *Princess Maranoke, and there was movies I really liked, but again, had really no connection with beyond being like they're really good animated films and also really scary and terrifying and surprising. Yeah. Why am I watching this? Um, but it was when I was twelve years old that my parents bought me a double feature of Spirited Away and Castle in the Sky DVDs. And that is when I fell in love. I watched both of those back-to-back so many times. Uh, Castle in the Sky is an underrated classic of Hayao Miyazaki. It's just such a lovely, beautiful adventure film and one that really speaks to his, his environmental um, messages, which we'll get to later. But Spirited Away is the movie that really just spoke to me on another level, and kind of made me realize, wow, movies can be like this. Movies can be something more than just, you know, a classic ABC story. It can be something that speaks to greater messages and themes and makes me feel emotions beyond just happiness or sadness is that melancholy that is just so pervasive throughout that movie and at 12 years old I was like I don't know what I'm feeling but I love it and I would watch it over and over again because it's a movie I couldn't quite grasp but every time I watched it I was able to just kind of glean something new from it and even now I was talking about this last time it's something that every time I watch there's always something new within it um that I'm able to just enjoy um, immensely. So that's the beginning of my Miyazaki uh, craze. After I watched those two movies over and over again, I decided that I'm going to collect every single Hayao Miyazaki film, and that was like my first collection. That was like my cinephile origin story. I collected every Studio Ghibli film I could get my hands on in DVD, and um, I think I missed a couple in the later years. I don't have uh, The Secret World of Arrietty, um and um but I had like all the other films that even Miyazaki didn't have any um sort of connection with. I had like Whisper of the Heart, although he he wrote that, as well as The Cat Returns, um, other films like uh Palm Poco, which was a Ghibli film but wasn't he wasn't connected to either. Uh so it was just something that um really played a such sort a of formative part of my childhood and kind of shaped my view on storytelling in general there's a great nhk documentary series that i watched recently called 10 years with Hayao miyazaki and in it he talks about how his process uh isn't that he starts with a script he always starts with a storyboard and he doesn't really start so much with um a beginning middle and end in mind he kind of just lets the story take him where it needs to take him and he says at the beginning i'm I don't have any um I don't have any interest in conventional story beginnings anymore. Stories don't follow logic. Children understand because that's how they they that's how they see the world. And I think that that's what really shaped me and kind of made me think of that's how I I've, I've approached movies really. Like story isn't like the really important part for me. It's just a mood, a feeling that that feel that movies evoke in me and Miyazaki movies especially always evoke that mood, that feeling, that just emotion that I can't describe, the sadness of things. And um, yeah, he's just such an important filmmaker to me, and Spirited Away, again, is one of my favorite movies of all time. All of his movies, I think, are stone-cold classics and stone-cold masterpieces. So I think that I'm really happy that we're doing this episode um, I I hope that my I'm glad I didn't I didn't burst into tears. Um, so But you got close. Got close. Um, but uh I want to ask you guys what your uh personal experiences are with Hayao Miyazaki films. Anya, why don't you go next?
0: Yeah, so I'm a little similar to you. Um, I remember vividly the very first Miyazaki film I saw cuz it was at a uh sleepover in middle school. And it was in, like, the the thick of my weeb days. And it was, like, a sleepover with my weeb friends. Um, And we watched Princess Mononoke. And I remember being, like, astonished by the film. But I I didn't quite understand the impact of it yet. It was almost a little too profound for me um, at that time. And all of the the consequences and themes that Princess Mononoke discusses. Um, But I remember being just kind of in awe of what I was watching, even if I didn't fully understand. Um, And so that was my very first experience. And then uh, the next film I saw was Spirited Away. And Spirited Away is probably the Miyazaki film I'm fondest of because it's the one I've seen the most and it's the one I know, you know, uh, backwards and forwards. And um, it's the one that kind of really got me into Miyazaki in a more, like, profound way. Um, and interested in, like, his work specifically. Um, And that was probably in high school, I think. Um, But then as I've watched more of his films and more of Studio Ghibli films, um, I have found myself drawn to the sort of darker ones with more, with deeper themes, I guess, than Spirited Away. Not that Spirited Away doesn't have deep themes, but Mm -hmm. the more darker films. Um, And so I would say that, now as an adult my favorite Miyazaki films are Princess Mononoke and Howl's Moving Castle Mm. because they're the ones that as an adult have affected me the most um and I think you know everything that HT said I want to just like second um I think it is really remarkable that his movies evoke such a mood and such an atmosphere um which can be incredibly hard to do. And he is so consistent in his artistry with that. Um, but rather than like the sort of the sadness and the the mood of his films, which are beautiful, I've always been drawn to the thematic nature of his films and specifically his exploration of nature and pacifism, um, which again comes from that post-World War II upbringing um, and kind of the turmoil that japan faced following world war ii um and his his ardent desire for uh pacifism and i find myself very drawn to those and just kind of in awe that they are in animated children's film and that miyazaki has never ever made films that in a medium that people always just relegate to being just for children and he says that this medium can be for everyone adults and children alike but also that Children are going to watch his films, and he is not going to dumb down his themes or, you know, insult children's intelligence by saying that, like, they won't understand these themes, or even if they don't understand it, they won't feel moved by them. And so I just so appreciate that his movies are wholly authentic and really respect the audience and respect the audience's intelligence. Um, And so I just think he's remarkable. And I'm glad that he hasn't actually fully retired yet, because I want Miyazaki art for as long as we can get it.
1: He can't retire. It's so funny watching documentaries of him. Is that he's endlessly restless, right. and he—it's actually kind of—it's almost a little bit bittersweet because in more recent documentaries, he keeps talking about how he is a an old like a tired old man and like kind of drained of all of his his passions but you can see that he that is not true he gets restless if he's not drawing and um, it's kind of interesting to see him trying to um, uh, come to terms with his age at the same time as come to terms with the fact that he will never have stop being able to stop creating so it's like an interesting dichotomy with him within him he's such a fascinating man like he is a very prickly person and kind of a bad father, which is a little bit in in uh, contrast with a lot of his films and how wholesome and how wonderful and whimsical they are. Like, he himself yeah. is almost the opposite of a lot of his films. He's very just um, uh, resolute and kind of practical and pragmatic. But in the end, like, it's amazing that he's able to create uh, and imagine such amazing things. But I'm going on a tangent, and I'm stopping Willoughby from going into his personal... <laughs> uh experience with Miyazaki. <laughs> so Willoughby, um what's your personal experience with uh Hayao Miyazaki?
2: Uh I did come to watch any of his films until college when I met you and you had all these films to 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 watch. Um and the first film I ever the first Zaki film I ever watched was Princess Mononoke. Um and that was a wild one to be the first one I think because it's like an epic fantasy of sprawling imagination and wonder um and then and uh and also in college uh we watched howl's moving castle and the castle in the sky and then spirited away as well so like those four were the ones that I had watched
1: that was my classic um, for crash time, course
2: yeah, yeah I mean it kind of gets it kind of gets at everything you get the uh, environmentalism, you get the melancholy, uh, and you get the fun adventures and uh, a, a bit of romance with uh, Howl. Um, so, so like those four were the ones that I had only watched for a really long time. And then uh, more recently, I've talked about this on the podcast, the Blank Check podcast, is doing their uh, Hayao Miyazaki miniseries. They do a director, and then they do um, uh, and. So, like, they go through all his films, episode by episode, film by film. So I took this opportunity to buy the Miyazaki films and watch them as the episodes of the of the podcast are airing. So I just watched Princess Mononoke again for the first time since college. Uh, still is gorgeous and amazing, and I can't believe it's real because it's all hand-drawn animation. But it's, like, it, it transcends the medium and everything. Uh, I think it's his, his work is so incredible and, and genius and gorgeous. And I just, you think that Western civilization or Western media would take more like inspiration. And like a lot of, a lot of animators like Brad Bird and those guys are like inspired by Miyazaki, but they sort of always fall back into like what we know of from Disney and Pixar and like, they do their best to be like inspired by, but like no, no one can replicate the master. I feel
1: yeah, it's like, inter- this
2: is, he's incredible. Yeah, uh-
1: it's interesting to me how singular of a director Miyazaki is, because even if other Ghibli films are in the same animation style and have similar stories or have stories written by Miyazaki himself, they can't quite uh, achieve the magic that I feel like a Miyazaki film can get. Uh, I think particularly about Goro Miyazaki, Miyazaki's son, who um, entered the animation industry uh, despite his father not really wanting him to and made his directorial, directorial, directorial debut with um, Tales from Earthsea, which was a film that felt like almost a hollow imitation of a Miyazaki film, it's really beautiful and you can tell that Goro Miyazaki has a handle on just the landscapes and environments and has uh, kind of seen many Miyazaki films and tried to sort of you know emulate them. But in a way, he isn't able to capture the spirit of Miyazaki, uh, of his father, that um he, his father has been able to do in 11 feature films. Um, and it's actually, I'm going to keep going back to this documentary because it was really interesting. Uh, the, it's um, actually available for, to stream for free on NHK's website, The Ten Years with Miyazaki. And it goes into that sort of fractious relationship between Hayao Miyazaki and his son, Goro. And the it go, leads into the making of um, Goro's second film. It starts off with the premiere of uh, Tales from Mercy. And they... Go into how Gorō Miyazaki, you know, kind of had an absentee father because uh, Hayao Miyazaki was working all the time, and so the only way he got to know his father was through his father's films. And you kind of get the sense that a lot of the Gorō's two films, which are *Tales from Ursi and *From Up on Poppy Hill*, are trying to kind of reach that pedestal that like that uh, Hayao Miyazaki sits, stands on. But it's uh, it's almost, it's a little bit. bitter. <laughs> It's kind of sad, actually, watching their relationship and uh, seeing Goro Miyazaki want that validation and Hayao Miyazaki not giving it to him. I'm going a little bit too much into the whole Goro and Hayao Miyazaki thing. I think it's very fascinating. But um, I think it goes into uh, Miyazaki as a person and how he kind of stands a little bit in contrast to the themes. Well, not the themes, but to his films themselves. He, the themes that he has in his films are very, I feel like, personal and to him. Um, and i think that's a good way to get into the themes of uh of miyazaki films i get the feeling this episode will be a little bit rambly and me kind of interjecting with random fun facts about miyazaki and i apologize for that i'm okay with
2: that <laughs> no apologies
1: okay that. yeah cuz now we're learning too and you
0: like you can steer the kind of the conversation and in, in Different ways that we wouldn't think
1: to. Great. All right. Um, well, then let's use that to go into the themes that uh, Miyazaki films often go into. There are so many. His films are so rich thematically and narratively, but there are a few that recur frequently throughout his films. I'll list them off now, and you guys can interject with a few, and then we'll go deeper into them. So the first one, of course, is his, his environmental themes. The in each of his films there pop up to be some sort of message about how nature prevails kind of and how um, humanity is is so insignificant and so small compared to the overwhelming power of nature and how, you know, we... There's themes of pollution and um, uh, just environmental destruction throughout his films and yet... um, there's that pervasive power of nature that always uh, flows throughout his films. You can see it in his first uh, major Ghibli film, which was to so of the Valley of the Wind, as well as films like Spirited Away, which don't really have to do with nature, but has a very major sequence um, do- dealing with nature and pollution. Um, and um, other f- themes that you can see, uh, he oft, he always has a strong, a really complex female protagonist, something that he has one-upped Pixar in over the years. They finally are starting to l- live up to that, but there aren't really any uh, f- interesting and complex female protagonists in animation as there are in Miyazaki and Ghibli films, I think. Uh, other themes, uh, like Anya said, pacifism, something that's been highly... Um, Influenced by his upbringing in that post World War II life and uh, the devastation that he saw wrought upon his own country by the war and everything, and how he never really he never wants to go back to that. He has very ardent anti-war themes in his films. Um, And um, can you can you guys think of any other ones? I think those are the three major ones. There are other. Yeah, uh, I can think of a
2: big one. I I can think of a big one. Yeah. Boy,
1: does that man love planes. He loves planes. Fun fact. Miyazaki doesn't like flying. So
2: many planes in so many of his movies.
1: Yeah. he He's obsessed with planes. Actually, uh, when he was young, his father ran a factory that made parts for um, Japanese planes. But for actual like war destroyers and stuff. Which was something that always... Uh, made gave Miyazaki conflicted feelings because he, as such a anti-war person, um, really disliked the fact that they were basic. His family were basically war profiteers, and that was something that kind of they can see throughout his films. That 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 uh conflict, that dichotomy, and uh, the fact too that his father
2: specifically in the wind, right?
1: Mm-hmm. He he definitely plays a lot into that. Um, I think in his earliest films too, like Nazca, which uh, his main character, Nausicaa, is very much a compassionate um, and uh, anti and pacifist person. So yeah, planes for sure. Yeah. But also fun fact is that Miyazaki doesn't actually doesn't like flying. He, despite loving planes, he doesn't like f- flying and uh, being in planes that much, which is really fascinating to me. The iron. Yeah. The iron. Wow. I know, right?
2: He's a and man, man that contains multitudes
1: he contains so many multitudes um I think uh I want to go first actually into his uh protagonists, his female protagonist specifically, um if that's all right with you guys, because I know that we're talking about course, environmental they are themes wonderful, people. they are so wonderful. I love those characters I love that his his female protagonist are a little similar to them to each other which is interesting they always come from that compassionate almost maternal space and that has a lot to do with uh his in his um relationship with his mother who when he was growing up was actually bedridden for a lot of his years because she suffered from spinal tuberculosis. Um, But despite that and despite him having to sort of care for her for a lot of his youth, she was a woman that was incredibly um, opinionated and strong and very – and he actually clashed with her a lot with um, their arguments that they would have on just various issues. So she was someone who – Played a major influences on all of his female characters. Uh, specific, it, you can see them a lot in a, some of the older characters, um, especially characters like uh, Ooh, in Castle in the Sky. Dola, Dola was a character who um, a lot of critics and a lot of Miyazaki's friends saw as being an act, of, an exact almost um, homage to his mother. But you see, like that sort of maternal instincts in a lot of his female characters, uh, and that sort of that idea that they are incredibly opinionated and incredibly complex and flawed, uh, something that he um, drew a lot from his his mother. So that's something that I'm kind of learning in, um, to an extent in the new book that I'm reading, Miyazaki World. But of course, he they are they're not all that that uh, sort of surrogate for his mom. But he does like the idea of of a female protagonist um, kind of exemplifying that, the good of the world. He kind of idealizes them in a lot of senses. But they are so interesting and unique that I think that the idea that they kind of all represent one woman doesn't, doesn't uh take away from them doesn't detract from them uh but what do you guys think about his female tra- protagonists? what do you think about like his all most of his movies being led by female characters
0: i love it of course um and the first thing i was going to say was the compassion of the female characters because that's always what kind of draws me in and impresses me the most upon them um you know i think think of all of them but i think sophie's probably my favorite um from Howl's Moving Castle, and I I just find her sort of resilience in the face of the adventure that she swept up in, and the very um, uh, hot and cold nature of Howl at times, Um, and the fact that Sophie remains strong and resolute throughout it, and shows compassion to both Howl and the other inhabitants of Um, the flying castle and yeah, she's always just had the biggest impression upon me. And I just really adore Sophie and think that she is a lovely, lovely protagonist. And I think it goes, goes, it's the same for all of its protagonists, really like there's the strength in them and the resolve in them. I mean, Princess Mononoke, I think probably most obviously, um, but yeah, I think they're all really wonderful, um, but I have the softest spot for Sophie.
1: Yeah, I do. I can see why. Sophie feels very much like an Anya character, actually, when I think about her. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: I And Sophie and Hal, like, their romance is, like, I'm very much into them, and um, it always disappoints me that there is, like, less Hal merchandise in the Ghibli oh, sort true. of space. It's very disappointing.
1: Um. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, like, it, it, the, the Ghibli merch is actually, having been in Japan. It's kind of disappointing, because the Ghibli stores are all pretty much, like, mostly entirely, like, Totoro and, like, No Face. And yeah. then also probably Kiki, like, and her cat. But, like, and there's, like, little things from the other movies, but much less so. And I'm always a little disappointed by that, because I'm like, come on, like.
1: Yeah, that's true. I guess it's because... You know, the Ghibli store definitely caters a lot towards children. And Howl's Moving Castle is one of his more adult films. Um, Not really in like its, it's, you know, being that much darker or like mature. But it's a film that with its romance and it's like sort of epic sweeping nature that it doesn't appeal, I guess, to children as much. I remember when I watched it when I was young, I didn't really like it that much. But it's a movie that really grew on me. And... Is so magical and enchanting that I I love it so much.
0: Yes, agreed.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Willoughby, what about you? What do you think about his uh, female protagonists?
2: I think they're all great. I think that it's to have. I mean, it, it, like the the fact that he does have a female protagonist of his character, most of his main characters, um, is sort of like. Uh, not the norm in like animation and what like you grew up with here in the States like Pixar and Disney um, and I think that they're all I think particularly Nausicaa and Ke- are characters that I really uh, like really really uh, like Nausicaa has such like great strength I mean, all these characters have great strength about them and, and some of them are like more internalizing and but others are very externalizing and I feel like Nausicaa is someone who is will like definitely like punch punch someone if they have to but also is compassionate and will definitely like you know is also very much pacifist. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah and I like too that whenever Miyazaki does have a male protagonist they kind of take a backseat to the female characters often um there's actually a funny term that was used to describe his male heroes they're called escort heroes because they're basically just there to (laughs) escort the the female character to do the actual world saving or to be the, the impetus for the plot you can see that especially in castle in the sky with um Pazu and Shita. Pazu is like kind of the main character, but Shita is the one who is central to the plot. Um, and that too, with Princess Mononoke, Ashitaka's there, and he, he does play a major part. But Princess Mononoke, the titular character, San, is kind of the the main main driver of the plot and everything
2: yeah and i that's really funny that there's an actual term for miyazaki boys uh (laughs) who are just doing their best to keep up with these strong strong women um i yeah like it's always so funny like uh like Tombo is like just in awe of kiki like from the from the get-go he's just like oh who's that witch on the on on her broom like like, uh, like they are like never really antagonistic towards the female characters, and they always have like a deep respect for. Them. I really appreciate that, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that it it's something that you you don't like. Like a lot of people know about Spirited Away, and maybe some of his more like uh like I guess Totoro is also one that like crossed over, but like a, like though I had never seen Nausicaa or, before. Um, or uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah, so the two that I've already talked about, and it, it, it when I it just sort of sort of like dawn on me, like oh yeah, all his films basically star like plucky uh, teenage girls, and they have to save the world some way or another. Um, and that's great. Um, I think that he uh is doing like great in terms of like representation. I think, you know, I feel like a lot of girls can see uh, themselves in these characters, and that's something that uh, is cool. I think that, yeah, it, it's always, it, it's it's great.
1: Yeah. And um, I think the biggest criticism you could probably levy against Miyazaki is that his female protagonists are often very similar. They are often like the plucky teenage girl, out to save the world, always very resilient, always very good. Um, but I don't think that's exactly the case. Uh, like we were saying before, there's a lot of like differences between each of the female characters. Um, I think especially when you see it in Chihiro in uh, Spirit Away, who was actually based off a real girl. Um, she was inspired by the young daughter of a friend of his, who he met and who he was fascinated by because she was um, someone who was very sullen and someone who was so out of touch with the world as he knew it, and he was so fascinated by that and wanted to build basically an entire movie around her. And um, I think that the growth she goes through is honestly amazing and one of my favorite character arcs for any character in a film. Um, but I th- when you talk about, when you think about like the similarness of his female protagonist, you can also think about the variety amongst his uh, supporting female characters too and how rich they are. I think especially um, the female villains like Lady Eboshi in Princess Mononoke is, stands such in contrast to um, like the sameness of his other characters or like the supposed sameness of his other characters because she is someone who is, you know, the antagonist and yet she comes from a place uh, of good intention too she she 's shown to be someone who cares for uh lepers who have been cast out and who you know is trying her best to save her people, even if that means destroying the forest and um, trying to kill a forest god for the emperor and um I find it interesting that you know I think she 's also a great example of how um a one human character isn't always the the one evil, the main villain of of his films. Often it's just um, it's something much bigger. Usually it has to do with like industrialization or corruption or something so big as that. And they are and these characters are like agents of such thing, but they are never a villain for the sake of being a villain. They're so, they're always really complex and interesting. And um, a lot of female characters, of course, I like that, Eboshi, uh, Dola, and also his male villains as well. Uh, am I, Am I, do you guys think so too? Yes, yes. No,
0: I think, I just like, I could sit here listening to you talk about Miyazaki all day because you've given him so much thought and his work. And while I have loved him for years, like your appreciation of him, just kind of makes me feel like I appreciate him more and I learn more about him and so like I'm just so like happy to just sit here and be like wow this is like yeah like I love when people talk about what they're passionate about Mm -hmm. and it it makes me just feel like I understand him more and appreciate him even more so I just like I know I'm not saying much but I'm just like wow HT just keep talking to me (laughs) um but yeah I agree um I agree with everything you were saying I I think kind of the sameness of his character's um, as much as I, like, love all of them, it has, like... it. it it's not my, like, personal favorite aspect of his movies. Like, again, um, I'm very much interested in his pacifism, which I've done a lot of research on just out of my own interest. Um, and I agree. I think there's some limitations to the sameness of them, but they're still wonderful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... I think so. I think that, like, especially when you watch a lot of his films back to back, it's interesting because you can see some of the templates of a character that he'll bring about for another film. Like, for example, when I was watching Nazca of the Valley of the Wind, um, the character of, well, what was the, the, the supporting male character's name? It's like Azpul As, or something? Um
0: I can't remember. Yeah. yeah.
1: He was, down to his character design, was basically the template for Patsu in Castle in the Sky. I was like, wow, this is just basically pre, pre-Patsu. <laughs> and um, he he often brings back a lot of those characters. It's It's just like funny to me that he'll, I feel like he'll throughout his career kind of come upon a character he really likes and will like kind of tweak it and change it a little bit and bring him back in another film, Um, like the design not the actual character. Uh, It was, what was his name? Asbel, yeah it was Asbel. But yeah and other characters like the father in My Neighbor Totoro, you see the basically the same design for Kiki's father and it's kind of a similar character as well where he's just like very kind and generous and understanding and very just like mild-mannered type of dad. so he he definitely has like doesn't have like the most variety amongst his character designs although i do think that um, he is just so imaginative when it comes to his non-human characters that it almost doesn't matter and again like his protagonists are never really the same even if they have like very similar sort of beats um, you would never like mistake for example nausicaa with with sheeta from castle in guy so um, yeah what 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 are your um let's go a little bit into the creatures actually that miyazaki has created and why they have such a hold on pop culture and why they're such a a staple of pop culture like why what, what is it about them like about totoro for example that is just so um universally loved willoughby
2: he's, <laughs> he's friend shaped
1: he's friend, I, I friend- love shaped. That. you can hug him
2: uh, <laughs> Uh no, I think okay, so like Totoro has become like the Mickey Mouse of Studio Ghibli. He's in front of all of their movies when you watch them on Blu-ray. Like he's like the mascot. And I I think that Totoro became such like the like Ghibli personified is because you th- you kind of take a glimpse and you're like he looks scary, but then as you real as you really realize it no, he's not scary. He's just he's, he's just big is and he's got a big mouth but that mouth is for burping and for screaming and for like calling the cat bus like and I think yeah and I think that uh, I think that yeah like he Miyazaki has such wonderful non-human characters in his films as well that I think that I think just the the design, the the characterizations of those creatures, are so fantastic and so wonderful that I think it's I I I think it's also a reason why like Pokemon has become such a, a lot like a like standing treasure, like people love the creatures of Pokemon because I think that you know we're we're used to our world's versions of animals but then you take something that we think we know and you kind of flip it like Totoro is like a big cat. Like, he's, like, a big cat.
1: He's, like, a big squirrel cat.
2: Like, yeah, like, it, it, um, my cat Gandalf is basically, like, he's, he's also chunky and gray and has, like, a white fur center stomach. And so it took me a really long time to realize that, like, Gandalf is also, like, a mini Totoro. Um, but he is, I think that there's just something so positive about having characters that are non- human that that have like uh anthropomorphic facial expressions and can basically like and like friendly and huggable and like if i ever like if i ever find like a totoro beanbag chair i'm gonna buy that Mm because i just want to like lay in his stomach um i think there's just something so like primal about that it's just like wanting to like hug a creature that looks friendly i don't know Maybe yeah.
1: that's just me. Um, yeah. I, I love that they're just so precious and whimsical. And they're and even though they're kind of, you know, drawn to cater to children, they never feel like they're pandering to children like a lot of animated sidekicks do um, in, like, Western films. Like, they're never, like, you know, that snarky little talking squirrel who just makes jokes all the time. Gigi's probably the closest to it, but...
2: Yeah, especially the the dub Yeah, Phil Hartman's character. Like uh from I haven't listened, I haven't watched the sub version of Kiki's Delivery Service, but from what I heard the 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 voice actor for the cat on in on in Japanese is not as quippy mm-hmm. as uh Phil Hartman's version, if if I'm correct. Yeah. Um but yeah, like I think that's the closest they get to
1: like ha ha look at this. Yeah. Billy Crystal definitely adds a quippiness to um, in House of Incastle to, uh, what was his oh, name again? Yeah, that's right. That's Billy Crystal. Yeah, it's the, Billy Crystal. The flame guy. The flame. The flame
2: yeah. spirit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like so Billy Crystal too. Like there's no denying yeah. that that's just Billy Crystal, True. voice in the flame.
2: So <laughs> like having Wallace Shawn in any uh, of your to- Pixar movies like, or John Ratzenberger, like they can't not be Wallace Sean or John Ratzenberger like that is Billy Crystal mm. you can't have you can't have Billy Crystal not be it's it's the um Jason Alexander as a gargoyle in Hunchback of Notre Dame where like you can <laughs> only have Jason, Jason Alexander. Alexander as a gargoyle in Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1992 like mm-hmm. that's that is so specifically a voice casting that happened today yeah
1: um, but at the same time, I don't mind the quippiness because it's something that is sort of added on, and it's not inherent to the characters. Um, but yeah, I I I like that they're that they're just kind of they're cute and they're definitely appealing, but they're not and like gratingly so. And um, I think too that uh, can,
2: can can we talk about the castle in the sky robot? The Castle in the sky robot so good
1: he's so good, so good. and he's definitely Walmart. an inspiration for
2: the iron giant isn't he
1: he feels like oh
2: 100 percent like he, he can't not be like he they look so similar and have similar like and color pastiches they have and, like a squirrel friend like how yeah oh oh the squirrel friend that shows up both in nausicaa and uh castle in the sky yeah.
1: It's very good. It's, it's
2: good. very good. Good squirrel friend. Good squirrel, squirrel friends.
1: Yeah. I, oh my god. I, I love the robot in Castle in the Sky. It's one of my, my favorite probably uh, of his of the Miyazaki quote unquote sidekicks. I would hate to call them that because they don't really feel like it. Uh, because they kind of just exist. They're there. And um, they're, they're part of that sort of Shintoistic animistic uh, thread that runs through a lot of Miyazaki films. Uh, I say Shinto by... That's the sort of... over Like the dominant religion in Japan. I wouldn't say it's a religion so much just as like a way of life. But it's the belief that everything has a spirit. Um, whether it be uh, objects like rocks or living things like trees. They have a spirit to them. And I think that that is so prominent in Miyazaki films when you see these actual things like these rocks these trees come to life um it's kind of that that idea that um again it's like they were always there and they will always will be that idea of nature kind of being so powerful and um just uh, a force that will never be hopefully destroyed by humanity and uh I think that's what is um so interesting about Miyazaki like supporting like animal characters is that they feel so um just ancient and new at the same time, you know? <laughs> like lore. They're like it's lore. Like the the bug
2: Yeah. The lore from, from Age of Resistance are like yeah. the Age of Resistance um,
1: and also in the say, in the say, the sense of being lore, like being mythic characters almost. Right. Yeah.
2: Like you you've got characters that like the bug the bugs from Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind mm-hmm. where like they are so like ancient thing looking like you think like oh these bugs must be from the prehistoric times but then you realize that this takes place like post apocalypse and they're probably like irradiated and growing and reclaiming the earth and they're huge and the babies are like human sized and you just realize that, like, oh, nature nature can fuck us up if, if it really wants us to. And, like, that's also, like, what Mononoke is about, which is, like, you can't kill a god because the god will just get mad.
1: Yeah. And the fact that nature keeps coming back at the end despite them killing the forest god, they didn't really kill the forest because it's still growing and it will still grow despite no matter what it goes through. Uh, fun fact about the ohm Yeah. Um. They are named after the way that Jap- the Japanese say worm uh, and kind of inspired by the sandworms of Frank Herbert's dune. And, oh, and, Ooh, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I can see that. Mm-hmm. And um, their name is also similar to the Buddhist chant om, which is, is like mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of like a prevailing Buddhist chant and kind of goes back into that more spiritual um, thread going throughout Nausicaa it's a very religious film (laughs) rather uses a lot of religious imagery um but yes Anya what do you think about uh everything that's been said about like these supporting (laughs) characters and like the little sort of animistic um uh themes of of these characters
0: yeah I love them I love how original they
1: are and how memorable and
0: distinctive they are um My two favorites are probably the Sip Sprites in Spirited Away. because I just think they're flippin' adorable. And um, I am also very, very, very fond of San's uh, wolf and, like, her wolf tribe in Prince Mononoke because I've always loved wolves and anything in the canine family. um, And I, you know, there's a reason that, like, Arcanine is my favorite Pokemon and that I just want to, like, my, my dream in life is to just have a dog big enough to ride Um, as Thor would say, if there's a reason I love Naga so much in, uh, Legend of Korra. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, polar bear Naga. Polar bear Naga. I just, any, any, any animal that is like big and fluffy, um, I want. And so, uh, San and, uh, the wolf tribe and, uh, has always... Spoken to me, but I'm also very, very fond of the sub sprites because they're so cute.
1: Got to give a good shout out to Yakul as well from Princess Mononoke. the best.
0: Oh, oh. best yes.
1: boy, best stag, best
2: elk,
0: best elk, best elk. Elk, yes, elk. elk. Very uh, also
2: he, he does. He does a phenomenal job of keeping his cool. Yeah,
1: cool, and being uh, and throughout
2: some wild shit.
1: Being loyal <laughs> to his to, to uh, Ashitaka, just wanting to even when he was shot. I love him fun fact about princess Mononoke that doesn't have to do with the movie but after i i showed it to my cousins um they were so obsessed with like, yakul that when we were biking around on bikes they kept going come on yakul so oh yeah they love yakul um i think my favorites are probably the kodama from princess Mononoke, the little four spirits that do the little clicking heads i love them those are really oh cute. yeah those guys love, very memorable yeah they're spooky but cute you know and um I, of course, I love No-Face. sort of,
2: that's also, that's also like a Miyazaki, like, aesthetic is spooky but cute.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I also love No-Face. <laughs> yeah. No-Face is spooky but cute. Spooky. Type but honestly, time. who doesn't love No-Face? I love him, because he's just a reflection the of all of our are... worst um, impulses.
2: I'd say the people who don't like No-Face are the hotel visitors. <laughs> yes,
1: the ones who got eaten by him. They probably yeah. were not fan <laughs> Um, yeah, but uh I just I love how varied and how whimsical and wonderful all of his supporting characters are, his non human characters. Um so with that, why don't we go into some of the larger themes of Miyazaki films? Let's go with the big number one with the bullet one, which is the environment. Um Fun fact about Miyazaki is that he kind of rejects his idea of being an environmental director. Uh, I was re- when I was reading the Miyazaki World, he was talking about the fact that early on in his career, he was kind of being, you know, lumped in as being like that eco eco friendly director, and he wanted to say that that's not what he's all about. But you can't help but notice how prevalent the environment is in all of his films. And um it starts off not with the Castle of Cag- Cagliostro, which is his feature film, it's more of like an adventure film and it's him adapting a manga that was well known as well, but it definitely starts off with Nausicaä of the Valley of the Wind, which I think is a film that kind of is a is a distillation, I think of his the purest it's the purest distillation of Miyazaki's beliefs. Um and it's a the, the thing about nausicaa is that the manga he continued writing it long after he had finished directing the movie it, like i think it finished in the 1990s so nausicaa is a property uh, is a story that has um, that miyazaki has been in has been living in for like the longest amount of his career and you can see that especially in the film and how how much care and how much um, Care he puts into it, and how you know the the environment is kind of the main thing it takes place in a post apocalyptic world that has been ravaged by uh, a horrible like war, and in which the toxic forest is basically threatening to consume the last vestiges of humanity um, but upon as you go throughout this film with Nazca, you discover that the toxic forest is actually the earth's way of reviving itself of rejuvenating itself and healing itself after all of the horrible things that humanity has done to it. And that's something that you see frequently throughout his films, again in Princess Mononoke in which um, you see all these humans and sort of industrialization threatening to destroy the last of nature and its its, uh, its power. But then you see that nature still creeps up. It's still it's still growing, and it's still it's still uh, um, going to be there at the end of the day. Um, there is a great quote that I can't remember where the page was, but uh, it was talk, it was how uh, Miyazaki was widely influenced by this philosopher who said that we I'm paraphrasing we live in a world of bugs and. Once we're gone, the bugs will, you know, remain. And um, oh, here it is, Scott Shaw. And rest assured that while most insects will survive, we are just a brief phase on this planet of bugs. So I think that's something that definitely is prevails through a lot of Miyazaki's works. And um, he too, uh, in his pers- in his early life, in his early childhood, was so impacted by the devastation that the war wrought. And then when he was growing up, uh, when he was a young man in the economic boom of the 80s in Japan, he also saw in a different way nature being destroyed by progress, by buildings, by industrialization. And he had harbored a resentment towards both that and towards war, both things that in a way, you know, killed the nature that he was familiar with as a young child, and always tr- was trying to go back to. And um, I, th- I think that's that is something that like has played such a major role in all of his films, whether they are the more lighthearted films like Totoro, which show that sort of pastoral utopia, that ideal of nostalgic childhood that is full of rolling hills and pastures and forests and forest gods that live in harmony, Um, that is the childhood that he wishes he could return to and he wishes that he could could reclaim the earth, Uh, and then the more darker apocalyptic visions and the visions of pollution and everything and how that is being destroyed by what he, by quote-unquote progress. So what do you guys think?
0: Yeah, no. Um, yeah. I mean, H2, do not worry about, like, talking our ears off. Like I said, like, we are loving this. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, Willoughby, why don't you kind of talk first, because the thoughts I have on nature kind of go into the pacifism thing, which, again, is my favorite, so I kind of want to save that uh, to go into that. So why don't you talk about nature in Miyazaki films, if you have any thoughts at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, to basically echo everything HT was saying and also like nature comes for us all in terms of both reclaiming the world and also like reclaiming us. And I feel like that's something that happens in his movies where like, you know, the whole thing. Spoiler alert. Uh, like, the forest spirit, when his head is cut off, like, starts killing off the forest and ravaging and, and, like, trying to get his head back and all of this, um, and then when he, when they finally give his head back and he disappears into the, into the world, uh, his, like, what ha- his final, like, act is giving a, re- a rebirth to the forest and the grass bringing back what was just taken away and it's sort of a reminder that nature is more powerful than uh we can ever imagine and also uh we've only got about maybe 12 e- years left until we got a, a, a no point of no return till we're fucking things over um and i there's something like powerful about the fact that um in mononoke the reasons these giant gods are becoming demons are because of bullets um I think it's something powerful that is is so like it's it's definitely not nonchalant. Like it's definitely like this is the reason these character these creatures are demonic creatures is because of man made bullets. And I think that is something powerful. And it's not on the nose, but it's also you you also can't miss it. I think you know. I think that he does a Miyazaki does a really good job of showcasing his themes that are powerful but uh he doesn't take them lightly he you know they are all like right there on the on the screen on the page and i think i'm trying to think like like nausicaa is just sort of the like humans fucked up and this is what we're trying to deal with now and that is and like there is hope like, I think that's the other thing about his, his theme feature are that it's about hope reading what is lost, and I think that that is very powerful.
1: Mm. Um, Anya, I want to know your, I want to pick your thoughts about this, because I know you've been kind of really interested in talking about environment and pacifism and how those themes really play into Miyazaki's films.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think they really do go hand in hand. Um, just because the destructive nature of war, you know, in, by its very nature, destroys the environment on our planet as well, like not only the loss of human life, but the loss of, you know, this kind of this greenery, and this, uh, naturally occurring beauty that we see in Miyazaki films a lot. Um, and so I really do think that they go together perfectly. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that Miyazaki was born before two nuclear bombs were dropped on his country and so he grew up in a country that was healing from that and struggling to heal from that and you know forever changed japan as a country it's it's nature it's people um you know the way it approached the world and i think that's incredibly important to remember and He himself, um, like I said, I've done a little bit of research into his pacifism because I'm so fascinated by it. And he himself is an outspoken, uh, you know, pacifist and environmental activist, not only in his films, but just as an individual human being. Um, He has, you know, he criticized the former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, and, you know, he was often criticizing any, like, right-wing people in Japan who were more advocating, war. Um, and I remember this all really kind of came to a head. I remember in 2013 when the wind rises came out because that film was kind of a loose depiction of a Japanese engineer who made a fighter plane in Japan. And, you know, that film itself is kind of blatantly very pacifist. Um, and I remember he wrote essays about being anti-war, and I remember right-right wing political activists in Japan really kind of turned on Miyazaki and called him out for that, and you know, thought he was sort of like a traitor uh, for his beliefs and what he said about me about Japan. And you know, I just I've always been kind of very moved by this and the way it appears in his films um I remember in I forget when this happened but at one point I remember Studio Ghibli like right, right outside their building they hung a banner saying that they would never make movies using sort of any sort of power from like nuclear power plants and they I refused to ever
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah I forgot when that happened it was it was a handful of years ago but, you know, the fact that, like, Miyazaki, he talks the talk, but he also walks the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he is able to do it both as an activist and as an artist. And I think it's very beautiful and very profound. And in the a, in a time where climate change is becoming the most pressing issue of our time, not becoming, is and has been, um, you know, his films kind of take on even more of a relevance and a mm-hmm. profoundness that is both beautiful and haunting Mm -hmm. and sad um but yeah so I just I'm I'm always very like moved and inspired by him in that regard
1: yeah he was always very much ahead of his time with his uh progressive values and his politics that you can definitely see in his early films like Nausicaa Valley of the Wind came out in 1984 but you can see like he is very like very political in that film and um in his films and outside of his films you can you can kind of see those politics um he also has there's a, a lot of uh sympathy for like unions and everything too he and like the working class as well which you see in films like Castle in the sky with the miners and everything that and um i think that's the, those are interesting threads that don't get um analyze that much because his films are you know geared towards children and people often take away the beautiful imagery and the um the the story and the characters but they don't take away some of the more innate political um messaging of those films which are quite you know strong and um i do yeah yeah Uh, i also think it's um Really interesting what you said about uh, his 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 being branded like almost a traitor by Japanese right wing politicians. Yeah, Um, because there's some there's like an interesting dichotomy too in like his childhood in that when he was growing up um, before the end of the war, he was you know being raised in this education system that taught him you know the emperor is all Jap japan is all powerful and the and you should support japan in every sense of that word in that way and it was almost like zealot zealotry and um incredibly nationalistic the way that he was educated early on and then the wa- the horrifying wake-up call of first the nuclear bombs and then um japan losing the war and being uh occupied essentially by by Americans, by the enemies. And um, you see a switch later on into sort of more Western democratic education, which he was almost taught to hate Japan. So there's that really interesting dichotomy. I think later on he actually does say that he hates Japan and its horrible legacy of war and imperialism. And um, you... That definitely ties into his pacifist outlooks, as well as his early films not really dealing with a lot of Japanese culture. He a lot of films take place in in Europe, as you might see a lot of his most majority of films actually like are in some sort of fictional European uh, inspired uh, environment or setting. In Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Kiki's Delivery Service, House of the Castle. And there's that sort of um, conflict of him in, like, hating and loving his country. Um, and sort of that um, he kind of – he does come to terms with it, I think, especially with films like My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away. And it's interesting to seeing that um, that journey that he takes throughout his career in not coming to love his country as much but coming to terms with, like, the good and the bad that uh, of Japanese history and the part that he plays in it himself. And um, I, I think that his fascination with Europe is in, in itself very fascinating. There is um, a great term for, that was brought up with his first film, The Castle of Cagliostro. Um, it was something called, par- I'm using the English translation, is the Paris of the mind the sort of Japanese, like depiction of this European fictional setting, and it's almost idealistic and utopic, and um, seen in that almost nostalgic sense. And um, I was kind of touching on this before, but a lot of uh, Japanese people actually view Europe, and it's more, rural sort of settings in that nostalgic sense they see it as almost an equivalent to the japan before um the war and before it was ravaged by all that devastation and um there's that nostalgia i think that carries through uh miyazaki's films for that more pastoral uh utopia and um it's, yeah, it's always very fascinating to me that kind of the underlying theme of pacifism and like the the complicated relationship he has with Japanese history and Japanese legacy.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's really interesting going to Japan now um, and seeing kind of the country as a whole and their fascination with Europe and kind of the West. It is, um, and France in particular, mm-hmm. like it is still very much prevalent there and something that is kind of. Has become part of their culture um which is very interesting and so like you can see like what a big part of it 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 is in the country and why of course that would you know have impacted him and kind of become part of him because it is something that the whole country shares
1: Mm -hmm. for sure yeah but yes I completely agree with you about his pacifism uh I really like I I remember when uh, The Wind Rises came out, and there's a lot of controversy from both sides over that film because he was talking about... uh, He was making a film, essentially, about a person who created fighter planes and who was essentially a war profiteer. But his way of approaching that character was to basically make the war unimportant. He was only talking about this this one man's obsession, his search... Uh, for the perfect flying machine, and for and for that one, that uh, almost overwhelming obsession with making something so beautiful and perfect and beyond human, and I think that in a lot of senses, um, that character, that that real person, was a an outlet for Miyazaki himself. He and like a kind of um almost a stand-in for him uh, as a as a creator, as someone who was always trying to make achieve that perfection and seek that perfection. What do you guys think?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. I haven't seen The Wind Rises since it's not in theaters, but uh, very much uh,
1: agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because The Wind Rises is such a different film from his past films. Uh, It doesn't have that whimsy. It doesn't have that childlike optimism that a lot of his other films are known for it's a film that i think is his most adult in a lot of senses it deals with a lot of complex themes that excuse me he's never really dealt with before and is also his most romantic film aside from perhaps how moving castle but even then howells had had tons of fantasy and epic sequences that made it much more like his other films but wind rises i wonder if it's an indication of the next phase of his career? If this is where he is going now, or because he uh, intended as a retirement film, if it was supposed to be his sort of like capping off, his sort of swan song, like this is who I am as a creator, and this is me written on the page uh, as plainly as possible. Do you think that with his next film, um, which is currently in development, uh, and he is working on it now. I think it is called, um, it's called How Do You Live? Do you think we'll see a film somewhat akin to Wind Rises where it deals with with themes and more muted sort of subject matter um, unlike a lot of the whimsy that we've seen in his previous films? Or do you think that he'll kind of go back to um, the the themes and like the, light-hearted touch that we've known him for
2: um I think I feel like I read something about, about the the book it's based on that it's definitely not uh like women's whim- fault. so I think that the 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 movie probably will be touched with like a like growing up themes and mature the and whatnot i't don't, I don't think. Yeah, like I think it'll be more akin to The Wind Rises and something more of a swan song mm. for him.
1: Yeah, so it's based on a book of the same name by Genzaburo Yoshino uh, from 1937. And it follows a young boy who um, uh, moves to his uncle's house after his father's death and um, experiences and observes various events in his school life with his friends. Uh, and then, following each chapter, the uncle who told the story of the day talks about themes such as the view of things, structure of society, relation, etc. And um, it seems very much like a very, like, it's calm uh, coming of age film. And yeah, it doesn't really have that whimsy that you that I was that you think of when it comes to Miyazaki. Um, and Toshio Suzuki also said, the producer of Studio Ghibli, in one of the um, Oh, the producer of, one of many of Miyazaki's films and one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, uh, he's revealed that he Miyazaki's working on the film for his grandson as his way of saying, quote, Grandpa is moving on to the next world soon, but he's leaving this film behind because he loves you, end quote. So I definitely think that that is the case. It feels very finite in, a, in another sense, but I wonder if this will be... His his next song, swan song, so to speak, um, and a way of just kind of acting out his drawing out his own life for and like wrangling with his legacy. I guess you would say. What do you think, Anya?
0: Yeah, I I guess when I think about like the legacy of me um, talking and what you guys are talking about in like the future, I'm I'm hoping to see kind of everything we've known and loved about him before and like your question about like, you know, whether or not it'll be kind of like the profound themes we've had or like the more lighthearted, fanciful Miyazaki, I I want both. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think that's where his legacy lies in the fact that he is able to balance both in such a beautiful and articulate way. Um and so that's what I'm hoping and I'm I'm excited to see um you know what he's coming out with and what you guys are talking about and just kind of see where he goes from here because um, as we know he can't just walk away that easily and I think you know I think the movies that he makes are kind of needed now more than ever and you know it would shock me if he didn't kind of see it that way too
1: and yeah I kind of where I am. I agree with you, Anya. I really love that. I think his films are needed now more than ever. And um I remember it's interesting because um he I remember he was criticized at some point for his characters all being so good, his protagonists always being good. And um he lashed out that um I think that he uh he wants, he believes in creating child characters who are believable and interesting but also fundamentally decent and he kind of lashed out at the the trend of having car- anime characters especially who are very edgy and, and, uh, and you know morally gray and I think that that's essentially what Miyazaki is about is that his characters believe in a better world and that's what Miyazaki is as a director he believes in a better world. He believes in a more yes. interesting and more beautiful world. Exactly. And it's so needed right now.
0: And I want that beautiful, more interesting world the more compassionate world.
1: Me too. All right. I think that's a good way of wrapping up our Miyazaki discussion. Uh very preliminary maybe we'll go back to it I don't know maybe when we uh, when he comes his next film comes out which is supposed to be either in 2020 or 2021 um, we can do another Miyazaki episode another retrospective because I would always be down for that as you guys know and I hope you guys would be too of course yes
0: always 100%
1: awesome yeah so with that let's move on to the last segment of our episode I really 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 like you but I need to tell you something. I really, 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 really like you. Alright, Willoughby, why don't you start us off? What do you really like this week?
2: I saw the fall space movie of twenty nineteen ad Astra. Uh it is the latest film owned by James Gray, it stars Brad Pitt on basically a one-man journey to the stars. That's what ad- means in latin um and it, it's like the easiest way of saying it's a, a like it's thematically related to like 2001 and apocalypse now and it's got shades of like first man and also uh it's really about the toxic masculinity that destroys father-son relationships mm. uh, uh yeah oh, oh the yeah, and, and so it's. I, I we may review it, so I don't want to get too far into it. But I I really appreciated that it's basically about how Brad Pitt is coming to terms with the issues he's had with, with his father, and his father's like m- mission to space that he hasn't been home in a very long time and presumed dead. Uh, so there's a lot there that. That Brad Pitt's character needs to unpack, um, and they do it in this really neat way of like psych evaluations that he has to give to this computer, and so like you see his just the sort of the, the the his outer shell breaking, and how he's like his heart rate his heart rate has never been over like eighty BPM, and how like that it, he's supposed to be this cool, calm, collected, perfect version of an astronaut without emotion and how this journey that takes them to the stars is about uh, breaking free of those restraints and coming to terms with uh, uh past issues and past relationships uh, yeah it's very it's like therapeutic in a way and also like it's really funny to just to see a lot of dads with families in this movie in the movie theater because i'm like oh they probably had an awkward ride home uh <laughs> um and so i think that yeah the movie was really good and and i want to talk about talk about it more uh, if we get a chance to it's gorgeous i saw it in imax and uh it is shot by the same guy that shot interstellar it just sort of boggles the mind that we can film we can make space look so real now and so like fantastic and i'm just like why can't I want to be there in real life. I want to go there. Um, but it also spaces there's there's some shots in Ad Astra at the very like like in towards the third act that makes makes you really realize that space is fucking empty. Yeah. Like it God is damn, just there's space. like no one out there. Oh man. It is just space. And you get these like wide shots of like the spaceship in space and you're just like, goddamn, if something broke out here, you're fucked. Um but yeah, that's uh, an Astro. I really liked it.
1: All right. I'm so excited to see it.
0: Uh, Anya. Yes, and I think we will be talking about it a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Uh, secret spoiler alert for future episodes of Millennial Falcon.
1: All right. Uh, Anya, what's your really like this week?
0: My really like, and my really like forever, because I can't stop watching this, is Brian Cox. Teaching the Hamlet to beer, to not to be, soliloquy to, to little toddler Theo. Um, so, for those of you who don't know, Brian Cox, one of the greatest actors to have ever lived, um, who currently plays the patriarch on Succession, the best show of all time that I am obsessed with and think about 24 um, 7. A clip went around on Twitter this week uh, that has gone viral. And it is Brian Cox, um, back when he had dark colored hair, and he is teaching Hamlet to be or not to be soliloquy to a little toddler named Theo, and it is just the most pure, precious, adorable thing I've ever seen. It's, it is basically like all of my favorite things wrapped up into one, because Hamlet is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, um... Brian Cox, like I said, is a phenomenal actor, and he's currently part of my favorite show. And, you know, he's a legend, especially in the kind of Shakespearean theater world. And seeing him patiently teach the soliloquy to a child um, and take so much joy in it just makes me so happy. And it's kind of like the bomb I need from everything right now. I have watched it, I can't even say how many times I've watched this video and I I just have it up in a tab on my laptop now to just kind of watch whenever I need to um, because it's just my favorite thing. And you know, the joy of sharing Shakespeare with future generations, um, especially from someone like a Shakespeare master like Brian Cox. um, And I just can't get over how cute it is and I love, I love sharing that and being able to witness such a such a lovely, you know, pure literary and, like, passionate moment. And it's so cute. And that kid does a great job reciting that soliloquy with Brian Cox. Like, bravo to Theo. Um, so that's what I really like. I know it's kind of a small one. It's not like a TV show or a book or a movie I've seen or read. But it is the best thing I've seen all week. And probably will be for like the whole year. Like I, I this video is like everything to me. Um I just so think yeah, am I really
1: <laughs> What? I just think it's so funny that you managed to basically make succession you really like in however so many <laughs> weeks in a row. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> you're, you're like
2: succession is my really like Kendall Roy is my really like Brian Cox an actor from Succession. It's very I good. I told
0: you I'm obsessed with it. If it manages to beat Game of Thrones to the Emmys tonight, I will lose my mind.
2: Um, if you're listening to this post-Emmys, uh, uh, sorry to Game of Thrones for losing. Yeah. yeah. Not God, so.
0: fingers, fingers crossed.
2: <sighs> um, yeah, no,
0: it's like, I should just I should challenge myself to make a in my, like, My really like for the rest of the year, like somehow just slip it in related to every (laughs) really like I have going forward.
1: Today I saw a a real shiv on the street. Speaking of shivs, (laughs) shiv on Succession is the best character.
0: Honestly, maybe, yes. I mean, this one is a little bit less purely about Succession. Uh, and more like I just genuinely love this video and like water represents and the actual content of it. Um, but also Brian a great on succession and I hope he gets an Emmy and Golden Globe nomination for future season. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I really like.
1: All right. <laughs> All right. So my really like is one that's been a long time coming guys. I finished the Jared crystal age of resistance and boy, do I love it? Yes. Ugh, oh, I've been, the. Uh, been um, been, you know, talking up this show ever since I saw the pilot back in uh, July, I think. Yeah. And um, I'm just so happy to finally have finished it. I took my time with it, but it was good, sweet time. And it was more time spent with my sweet baby boy, Hup. I love him. Hup. He just wants to be a paladin. Hup. This is one of the most gorgeous shows um, in recent years. Definitely one of the most gorgeous fantasy, so- fantasy shows ever. And it is such, it's so amazing to me how they were able to juggle such a sprawling ensemble and bring them together in a giant narrative without making it seem clunky or, or um, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Or just like, or badly done. It's just, uh, it's a great show. And I was gripped from minute to minute. And I love the fact that the halfway through or like towards the later half, it basically shifts into being Avatar The Last Airbender. And I absolutely love that. And especially when they journey into the desert and um, they go down to like the small group and are journeying through on the giant manta ray that flies. I'm like, oh man, this is basically Avatar The Last Airbender. Celadon too has her sort of Azula turn as well. Um, But I, I love that there's just so many influences going into this but at the same time dark crystal age of resistance is something all to its own and i am s- I'm excited that they were able to basically lead into a second season they they kind of left things on a cliffhanger and we were like oh there's something that could out- more be explored in this um instead of just like jumping straight to where we are with the movie which kind of lends a little bit of a dark note to this entire series because they oh, it kind of yeah. suggests that they do kind of lose but in the meanwhile, it's fun to see them fight for Thra and hopefully win in some way. But it is kind of sad to know where the end result is. H.T., can I ask you a question? Yes. So
2: we all, all we all know and love Hup. He's great. He's a paladin. He's Hup. What do you think of my baby boy Lore?
1: My baby boy Lore? is also my baby boy, Lore. Yes. He's so good. I love him. I love Lore. Lore. He's so ro- he's a pile of rocks who loves. He just will protect he's them. A-
2: yes, that's- he's, a- he's a he's a friend-shaped pile of rocks. Yes,
1: he's a friend-shaped pile of rocks. Anya, if you haven't seen uh, uh, Dark Crystal yet, I I implore you to watch it. I think you'll love it.
0: I- yeah, I think the pilot, um, and I loved it, so I'm just very excited to keep watching. Um, I'm, yeah, Anya. I'm so excited.
2: Anya. Yes. There's in the middle of the, of, the, of the season that I think will fall in love with. They're, they're voiced. I, I'm just going to spoil it because I think it'll entice you to watch So They're voiced by Andy Samberg and Bill Hader.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, you yes. need to watch it. You need to the
1: catch voice it. And
2: watch
0: the, show. It's it's so, the voice, the voice
1: it's cast is fantastic. fantastic. It's fantastic, and I'm insanely impressed by how good they are at voice casting because it's very star studded, and a lot of screen actors don't often make the switch to voice acting that well, um, unless like they have practiced or trained it in some way. Because voice acting is different than screen acting, but. They are amazing. And I was so impressed by everyone. Like, they were able to express so many different emotions just through their voices and through puppets that generally don't have that many emotions and yet make you feel so much. So, yes. And yeah, Andy Sandberg, Bill Hader are great. The funny thing about it is that Andy Sandberg sounds just like Andy Sandberg. And you're like, that's Andy Sandberg. But well, Bill, <laughs> Bill Hader does well, a good here's job. The
2: thing. Here, here's the thing about Andy Sandberg voicing a character in Agent... Uh, in Age of Resistance. He sounds like he's Andy Samberg, but he's also channeling big Frank Oz energy. He is. And so I think he did a great job there. He like, did. I, At first I thought, is that Frank Oz? But I'm like, no, that's Andy Samberg. Um, it's very good. Uh, the show is great. I, I also finished it um, after took It was uh, my assigned homework for that summer reading episode. And after we got done with the podcast, I just binged it for the next two days. Oh my god, it's such a good show. Anya, please watch it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I,
0: I will definitely keep watching it. So, d- no, no, me, don't, I cannot speak. Um, do not fear. I will keep watching. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, that is our episode for the week. If any of you guys have any thoughts on anything we've discussed in this episode, including Miyazaki, or Dark Crystal, or if you've seen Ad Astra, or if you have any thoughts on Succession at all, (laughs) the best show ever, um, come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby?
2: You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can rate, review, subscribe, and listen to us on itunes google play and soundcloud tell your friends please um and where can they find you guys
1: on on the net you can find me at htranbui on twitter
2: you can find me at anya crittenton on twitter and you, you can find me at Willoughby dogs on twitter
1: all right thanks for joining us guys bye bye, bye.